It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 89, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. David Hamilton manages Sisters Hill Farm in Stanfordville, New York. David says he has five acres in production, but it's worth noting that with what seems like typical attention to the details, that's five acres of ground actually growing vegetables. He figures he's got another four acres in field roads, turnaround areas, and other grass areas around the farm. All of Sisters Hill's produce is sold through a market-style CSA. The Sisters Hill CSA program has maintained an 80% retention rate by selling the farm experience as well as the vegetables. And we dig into the details of how David's created a farm that provides a peaceful, relaxing, and community-oriented experience for its members, as well as for David and his apprentices. David shares how he's designed the farm so that it serves him rather than him serving the farm. We dig into his apprenticeship program, how David has created his own tools to solve little bottlenecks, his design for weed control from soil prep through mechanical cultivation, and more, including how the management and teaching structures he has put in place help the farm survive David's two surgeries in the past year. David's up to some pretty cool stuff at Sisters Hill Farm, and I think you're going to like this episode. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. And by Farmers Web, making it simple for farms to work with wholesale buyers such as restaurants, retail stores, and schools. Farmers Web software streamlines your wholesale operations, making it easier to work with your buyers and with more buyers overall. FarmersWeb.com. David Hamilton, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks very much, Chris. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start off today by having you kind of set the context for us with Sisters Hill Farm and and how things are set up there, how you're marketing your produce, how many acres of ground you're working on, and kind of all those details that help us understand a little bit more about the principles behind what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, great. I'd be glad to. So Sisters Hill Farm is a CSA farm. We're located in Dutchess County, New York, in the Hudson Valley. The farm began in 1999. That was the year I was hired by the Sisters of Charity to start a CSA farm for them. And in that year, we had 40 members, and we grew on just one acre. And nowadays, we are growing on about five acres of ground, and that doesn't include sort of grassy strips and things. That's just our productive land. But on those five acres, we now have 250 full weekly shares, and we have about 100 of those are biweekly, and about 200 are every week shares. On a given year, generally, we harvest around 90,000 pounds of produce, and it's myself, and it's generally three apprentices. Uh, Some years, an apprentice will come back, and I'll have them be an assistant manager. So the farm is owned by the Sisters of Charity, and they hired me as a farmer. Um, I had farmed a year prior at a farm that was about 25 acres of organic vegetables. And I was really excited to come here and work for the Sisters because that farm was a little bit disorganized, and we were sort of all over the map in terms of marketing. And... I wanted to come here and start very small, as was their plan, start on just an acre of land, and I wanted to do it in a a very conscious way. So I wanted to have very well-planned-out crops, and I wanted to have just put as much of myself into it as I could to assure that we had something of quality and grow my skills as we grew the farm. And so it was an exciting endeavor for me, and I wanted to be back in this area. I grew up on the other side of the river in Orange County. 
so I'd be back near family. And um, so it's been a wonderful um, pleasure to grow the farm all these years. I, as I like to say, it's a match made in heaven between myself and the sister. <laughs> I kind of I kind of grew up in a household um, where helping others was very important. Um, my parents separated when I was uh, still pretty young, and my mother took in foster children to help support our family. So we had many dozens of foster children in our home throughout the years, and so I was brought up with this um, ethic of service to others. And so the Sisters of Charity, their work has always been with women, children, and those who are poor. So I felt a really strong kinship towards their mission. And so helping those who are in need has always been a natural part of the farm's mission as well. So we say our mission is to grow healthy food, which nurtures bodies, spirits, communities, and the earth. And uh, that simple mission has sort of led our everyday functioning since the very beginning. Uh, nowadays, we donate, or actually since the beginning, we've donated about 10% of what we grow to those in need. And part of the way that happens is through donations that members give. And those donations go directly towards either free or subsidized shares for lower income families. In addition to that, we give produce to four different organizations in the Bronx, where we have one of our pickup uh, locations. Um, on a monthly basis, they alternate and get everything else that we can give them to them. So that's basically the way the farm works. As a pretty well-established farm with 250 shares going, is the farm supporting itself now, or is this something that's subsidized by the sisters? Yeah, that's a great question because it's funny that there seems to be a lot of animosity, frankly, I think, in um, on some regular farmers or nonprofit groups and things. So what I've... I've driven from the beginning to have this farm be sort of economically viable and self-supporting. And it is, um, we don't take in extra money, essentially. We do have some um, donations, as I mentioned, but those donations generally account for about 3 to 5% of our gross income on a given year. And those donations also work pretty much like our shares. So that money is going towards those for your shares. So the Citizens of Charity do certainly support this work and, um, you know, the, all of their works are related to it. That's something they're very proud of. But even if they, even if it wasn't supported by that, the farm actually is self-supporting based upon our membership. So. so are you basically drawing a salary then from the Sisters of Charity? Yes, I am drawing a salary from the Sisters of Charity. But the way that our payroll works here at the farm is the larger organization of the Sisters of Charity uh, they have a payroll service, and then once a month we write a check to that payroll service for both my salary, uh, my pension, which is wonderful that I've got that established, as well as the apprentice uh, stipend. So all of the farm labor expenses, all of our tractors, all of the infrastructure that we've built over the years, our updating of our apprentice housing, all those things have been paid for through farm funds uh, directly from our sales. It's really a great way to run a nonprofit farming enterprise, to really have it set up as being a self-sufficient enterprise. I like that a lot. Thank you for taking that approach. Oh, yeah. It's always been a goal of mine because if I go and tell other farmers, oh, this is working out great and this is something I recommend, a lot of people kind of see what we have and go, oh, there's there's huge money behind that. You know? <laughs> and in actuality, it's not. So I've always wanted to, when I show other people what we're doing, I've always wanted to be able to say, 
you know, you could do this. And, you know, some people say, well, you're not paying taxes. Well, I say, well, I have property right across the road that I could be farming on that I pay taxes on through my salary. So, um, you know, it's kind of pretty equitable in terms of what farmer would have to be dealing with. Personally, I think there's some real give and take there, right? I mean, you're not you're not paying property taxes. You have some, I mean, you've got some structural advantages. You get a salary. Um, but at the same time, you're not building equity in the farm either. If you're not, if you don't own it, those tractors are, when you buy a tractor, that's the property of the Sisters of Charity. It's not the property of David Hamilton. Yeah, absolutely. And I love farming so much that <laughs> two of the tractors actually are mine. Oh, the, <laughs> you know, in the early years when our budgets were a little smaller and I really wanted to make sure this farm was succeeding, I I purchased our very first cub and, you know, I purchased a good quality MIG welder. And so, and more recently I purchased, you know, a 50 horsepower tractor with a loader because I was going to do some farming on my property that I never ended up feeling like I had the time to do. So (laughs) we've got some tractors around here that are actually mine too. But yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get the equity, but by the same token, there is such a sense of community that we, that we have built here over the years that every time I think about going off on my own, starting my own farm and moving away from here, I think about, for example, this one 85-year-old volunteer who showed up the very first year, you know, 18 years ago when he was newly retired and saw me picking rocks out of the field. And he and his wife came out and started helping. And they just wanted to make this farm successful. And he still does it. And over the years, he has come to the farm and picked over 900,000 pounds of rocks out of our field. <laughs> and he helped wow. with weed. And, and so there's, there's, and now he's 85 years old. And there's this, just this amazing community that we've developed here. And we're doing so many wonderful things. And like I said, I really respect and admire the amazing contribution that all of these sisters um, of charity have made a huge part of their lives. And I'm, pleased to be part of that. I may not have that equity, but there are other things in life, you know, besides my, you know, my net worth. So, so you and I met, I think at, at Paul and Sandy Arnold's back, it was probably 2002 or 2003, but you kind of have been off my radar for a long time. You recently came back on, you popped up on Facebook with some videos of things that you were doing on the farm and, and the tools that you were creating to make your farm work better. And it's a really interesting stuff and, and seem like some stuff that's very specific to your operation. Yeah. I really love designing and building things. And so when you first begin farming, I think the best way to go about it is to really find some great mentors. And Paul and Sandy Arnold were great mentors to me. And of course I read Ellie Coleman's book, The New Organic Grower, and he was instrumental to my early success. And but as as I was on the land here, learning from the land and learning from my successes and failures, what I found was that a lot of the solutions that I needed for things to create effective systems around the farm, they didn't really exist for this scale. And so, you know, there's three ways to, to figure something out when you need to answer a question in your life or in your work. You can look outside yourself, you can look within yourself, or you can make up an answer. And I was pretty good at looking within myself and making up answers. So uh, some people are really great at research and they'll be able to figure out, you know, there's exactly this tool that I can get from China. In my case, it was like, you know, what is the little bottleneck here? What is something that I'm doing every day that takes 10 minutes that if I created a solution for it, it might take one minute, you know, or it might take two minutes. 
A great example is like in our greenhouse, we have just these simple little benches. They're four feet by 10 feet with one by one galvanized mesh on top. But there's a set of wheels at one end. So when we need to harden off transplants, there's 30 flats of transplants on there. You can, one person all by themselves, whoever's in charge of the greenhouse that day, can pull out that entire uh, rolling bench of, of transplants and another one in just a couple minutes rather than have the entire crew up there and spend a couple minutes doing the same project and setting them on the ground. So simple little solutions, but just things that address those everyday bottlenecks um, are things that I love to focus on. And so for a farm of our scale, one of the things I've focused on quite a bit is kind of our wash and pack area. It's, it's all very simple, but we have great little pallet jacks and um, hand trucks that work specifically with those. And we have a pallet size scale recessed in the slab. We have a wash tank. that's just a 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank, but it's on top of a hydraulic lift table. I'm six foot seven. Some of the people that work for me are five feet tall. So when we're working around that wash tank, depending on who's there trying to get something rinsed up, um, I could develop a pretty bad backache or they could develop some pretty sore shoulders trying to work at a tank at an inappropriate height. So I put a lot of energy and effort into streamlining those projects and those kind of processes and also making them more, uh, excuse me, not economically, but ergonomically feasible for us. So although economics are benefiting from that too, because we all those tasks go much more quickly. Well, not to mention your workers' comp bills when you're talking about backaches. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, those are a couple of really specific tools that you've that you've created, and I and I love those examples. Are there things that you did in the design of the farm as a whole that were were part of that process? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that I really love to kind of mention to new farmers or maybe even experienced farmers. Sometimes when I, the Arnold's actually, they have this conference that they put on every year where they just kind of invite growers that they really have learned a lot from over the years and they think are experienced and have something useful to share with one another. I remember going up there one, one year, maybe three years ago, and there were all these amazing things that these growers were sharing. And I was quite in awe of all of their operations. And I was a little bit humbled to talk about mine. And, and basically what I said was, you know, what I feel I have to offer is just that I have a very balanced life. So I work reasonable hours. Um, and it's not just because I'm a, I'm an employee, but rather because I've set up the farm so that we can get the work done in those hours. So we, I work 45 hours a week. My apprentices work 45 hours a week throughout the season. And then of course, less in the winter, but, um, that's possible because I've designed the farm so that it serves my life and not so that I'm a servant to the farm, I think is the way that I think about it. And so I look at the, the whole of the farm and design it so that it serves the function that I want it to serve. Um, I try to, I think one of the, one of the things that's happening, uh, I'll use the example of the CSA farmer discussion on Facebook, which I'm a part of because I've, been injured quite a bit this year and has had a little bit of time to to try to contribute in that way and kind of see what other people are have to say about CSA and things. There's a lot of negativity around CSA. And I feel like part of the reason that these people don't feel that CSA is a viable marketing opportunity anymore is because they're just thinking of it as strictly that as a marketing opportunity. Whereas I'm thinking of it as from the perspective more of my customer and of trying to create community. And so because we have this market style CSA where almost all of our members come to the farm 
and because we've made it a real place of beauty and tranquility. And I mean, the farm is, um, it's pretty immaculate. We, we have a lot of, uh, beautiful pick your own areas and we mow sort of uh, the field edges short and they're more like a manicured lawn than they are, uh, most field edges and things. So it's just a beautiful place when people come here and they say, they feel this sense of peace, um, you know, like sort of the worries of their world fade away when they pull in here and they really enjoy meeting their neighbors and seeing kids pick flowers and uh, just the whole experience in addition to the vegetables. So I'm perhaps getting off topic a little bit here, but <laughs> what I've done is I've tried to create this farm around the way that I want my life to be. So David, that, I mean, it actually, you know, I was I was trying to ask a question about about the physical layout, but you really hit on on not just the physical aspects of the farm, like keeping the field roads mode, but you also talked about kind of designing the farm as a as a beautiful place, as a place that people wanted to be. I suppose this does extend into the idea that the only thing you're doing is the CSA. Yeah, I guess with that design ethic in mind is that we were very deliberate about having this be just a CSA. And I think there's, there are definite benefits to that. Um, what I have seen a lot of, or what I hear a lot of from other farmers is, okay, I'm going to do a CSA and I'm going to do markets and I'm going to sell to a restaurant and I'm going to sell wholesale. And they're just sort of grabbing at every little piece of the market that they can find, you know? And what's wonderful about thinking about, your farm very deliberately from the beginning and visioning what you want out of life and what you want your life to be like, and then going from there with the design of the farm, I think that's the right way to approach it. Um, there's a quote that I like, and it's, a vision without a task is but a dream. A task without a vision is pure drudgery, but a vision and a task is the hope of the world. So it's like most farms fail either in their, they didn't, and properly envision what they want out of the farm. You know, they're just sort of going after the whims of the marketplace or they're not good at creating systems. So their tasks fail them. You know, they might have this wonderful vision, but they're not efficient enough in their the way that they grow food or, the, or they're not, um, they haven't put enough effort toward their marketing strategy or the way that they approach the business. So it's really the synergism between having the right vision and then having the right systems and, and tasks ahead of you. So. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I, I think it's, I mean, it's part of what you're talking about when, I mean, if I go back to the first example you gave from the from the design build standpoint was having these rolling tables that you could move easily 30 flats out of the greenhouse at one time for hardening off, I think is a good example of that, right? You've got the vision of, I want to harden these things off. I want to do a good job of growing good plants and then saying, how do I actually make that easy and efficient to do? Right. Um, so, you know, one of the things that strikes me looking at pictures of your farm is that you've got a, it is a really sharp looking farm. You've got, it seems like a lot of field edges, but, but then you've got a lot of, um, you've got really great weed control going on. Yeah. Not perfect. I mean, I, I, I notice you do have some lamb's quarters in with the lettuce and there's some, you know, there's a, a couple blades of grass in some of your pictures, but, yeah. but overall, <laughs> Stuff looks good. You're not picking things out of the weeds. Could you talk a little bit about how you've got your farming system structured and and how that leads to the weed control? Sure. 
Um, I think, you know, I've done a lot of topics, a lot of workshops on this for, for our local craft group. Um, when they come to the farm from the other uh, craft farms that we're a part of, I focus on sort of mechanical cultivation, weed control, and wash and pack kind of systems around the farm. And we're a pretty small farm and, you know, about five acres. And we grow myself and three apprentices. So we don't have a huge labor force. But the farm really is beautiful. And actually, one of the things I enjoy most about farming, I don't really love harvesting, although that's what brings the money. Um, I, I love the beauty of the farm. And when the farm is beautiful and when the farm is neat, we really feel successful about, you know, we feel like we're really professional, you know. And when members come here, they say, wow, this farm is beautiful. And sometimes they'll go visit another farm and they'll say, wow, Sister Hill Farm is that much more special because now I see what other farms are like. So, there's a certain pride that comes with that, but there's also just this real aesthetic pleasure. And when I'm out in the field, you know, I really get excited about that. And I think the people that work for me take pride in that too. Uh, so the way we approach it is um, we lay a good foundation for effective weed control. So the start of that is having a good flat bed. So we have a fairly robust rototiller that goes behind uh, our larger tractors, a 67 horsepower John Deere. And we use a a 60-inch uh, tiller behind that. And then there's a custom-designed marker that I've created that uh, belly mounts under a cub tractor. And it's made of wood, and it puts out three rows and then a grid going across that, three rows of 15-inch centers, and then a grid every foot. So, like, today we were planting garlic uh, as a crew, and we had one volunteer in my crew, and we had... Um, seven beds to do. So there's about 8,400 cloves of garlic we needed to put in. And before lunch in about an hour and a half, we had put, we had finished planting five of the seven uh, beds. So whatever that is, maybe 6,000 cloves we put in in an hour and a half with five people and they're perfectly spaced. So we just shoving them in the soil right on that grid. And we do the same thing with all our transplants. We actually purchased a almost $12,000 transplanter years ago. And we sold it a couple of years later because we only do about 50,000 transplants a year on the farm. And when we're doing it on our hands and knees on this grid, we kneel right between the center row and we work our way up the bed and somebody's throwing transplants down, but we can get them down on that grid pretty darn fast. And I usually have sort of people who are new to growing. And so they're really excited about that connection to the soil. But um, we can be very precise with that. And so we can cultivate mechanically after the fact. So even with direct seeding, we direct seed with an old Planet Junior seeder and we push it straight down those rows and we can mechanically cultivate them again with another cub tractor with a budding basket weeder. And that budding basket weeder works fabulously when the plants are small. And then we have uh, other setups as well with sweeps, you know, for one row cultivation, two row or three row, depending on what, how wide the crop needs to be spaced. Um, and then we have hillers for the cub as well for potatoes. We can hill those up. So we have the equipment for that. But even in the very first few years, I used the exact same marker. It wasn't mounted under a cub. It was just mounted with a, it just had an EMT handle, a bent metal handle that I created. And I would push it down with a string, you know, along a string, and we would cultivate with wheel hose that were fit perfectly down those rows. And that was very efficient, too, you know, so we got to two or three acres or so and started purchasing cubs to make that aspect of it more efficient. But that's basically the way we approach weed control. So there's a number of principles that, you know, we could discuss this for the entire hour, but I've tried to make it so, uh, despite the fact that we're planting by hand, we can cultivate effectively with the cub tractors mechanically. What are you, 
How are you growing your transplants? Are those done in soil blocks or are you doing those in, in plastic trays? We're doing them in plastic trays. Mostly we use the uh, wind strip, those hard plastic ones, 128. That's what we do primarily. So you're not putting out a huge transplant and, and you're not putting out a huge soil ball when you do that. Do you guys have good irrigation on the farm? We do. I mean, for our size and scale, we have a well that produces about 20 um, gallons per minute of flow. And so we mostly, well, we have a variety of options. We have these irrigation boxes all around the farm that are underground, so they're not obstructing us driving around. We're not driving on tubing and things. Um, And then we go up from that. We've got all these different drip header assemblies that we've created and these sections of that blue hose. Um, that are 25 or 30 feet long, we can connect, can connect those together and we can go up to either 30-foot aluminum pipe or to, you know, drip assemblies and things throughout the field. So, And then we also have a, a water reel, too, that we can use in different areas of the farm. We've got the entire myriad of options that you might want, really. And in, in the way the farm is designed, have you done things like making all of the beds the same length? Yeah. You were able to carve out your fields to to really contribute to your ability to to kind of standardize things then? Yeah, absolutely. So our standard bed on the farm is 200 feet long. Uh, first year I worked with 100-foot beds, and I found that it really wasn't efficient enough when you when, once I started using tractors because you need that sufficient turning room at the ends of fields and things. So have, having said that, we do have some fields that are 100 feet, and we have some fields that are 400 feet. But we just consider the 400-foot length to be two beds and the two of the 100-foot lengths to be one bed. And so for our planning purposes, um, it works out really well. It's very easy. And then also anytime we're cutting um, strip tape or we're cutting row fabric, we can take it and use it on another place on the farm. And so the systems and the pieces of material that we would be using are easy to, they're modular. And just because you mentioned it before, talking about maintaining those field edges, and I've always felt like the ends of the rows were one of the sloppiest places on the farm, especially when you're doing mechanical cultivation. It's hard to get everything nice and even and tidy. And then to keep things mowed along there, what are you doing for maintaining those the ends of those fields so that they look so sharp and pretty for your CSA members that are coming to, the, coming to visit every week? Yeah, well, the ends of the field, I always, uh, I, I like when I'm giving my tours to newbie farmers, to talk about the edge effect, you know, always the hardest place to deal with on a farm is your edges. So people that love the idea of living mulches and things like that, I say, well, you've got that encroachment from all those edges. Or if somebody wants to use, you know, two bed with remay instead of five or six bed with remay, now you've got all that edge to cover and uncover. So that's a good question. Um, What we do primarily is like if we're using the cub, we make sure we go in both directions. So we'll always go one direction out, up up a bed, and then we come back another direction. And that way your um, cultivators that will be cultivating behind your wheel track will hit everywhere. They won't be lifted up early and then not hit the last few feet. And the same thing with the cultivators that are belly mounted. But at that very edge margin where those weeds are inevitably going to come up, we'll be using hand hose and whatnot and weed whacker and, you know, we'll clean it up in that way. But the fact that we do keep everything well mowed does contribute to making that quite a bit easier. You know, you can have the mower overlap a little bit into there or uh, weed whack a little closer, whatever it may be. Part of the reason we do that is, you know, for one, for the aesthetics of the customers and to give them that sense of peace and beauty and make their whole experience uh, that much more fantastic. But it's also 
because Lyme disease, we're in Dutchess County, sort of like the epicenter of Lyme disease. And so we like to keep everything nice and short for that reason, too. And then moles and foals, of course, and groundhogs and rabbits and all those things. It's a little less hospitable for them. So we'll lose fewer crops to their nibbling. All, all good reasons to do a little mowing around your vegetable farm. Sure. Um, what, what are you using for, for a mower? Anything special? Uh, well, we have a zero turn that we use in most of the most of the fields up close here. And then if we're in our further fields down the road a little ways, we'll use a, like just a rotary mower, like a six-foot model behind behind our tractors. And about how many acres of, of field roads are you maintaining that way? I don't know exactly. <laughs> I'd probably say, you know, maybe four acres of grass area, you know. Okay. Yeah. So that, that investment in that mower becomes something that is a pretty important piece of equipment on your farm. Yeah, and it's fun. Everybody loves using a zero-turn mower. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe most importantly, right? Yeah, work should be fun. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about that because that is actually something the the person who contacted me and recommended me to have you on the program, he said that you you run a great apprenticeship program. And he wanted you to talk about that on the podcast. So when you talk about work being fun, let's dig into how you make that work at Sister Hill Farm. First and foremost, I would say is that I spend probably more effort hiring great people each year than any other thing, because obviously the most important resource on the farm is, you know, the human capital, uh, to use a business way of talking about it, but the people you're with. So I try to make sure that I, that I hire apprentices who I really feel have a good aptitude for eventually becoming successful farmers themselves. So that in and of itself takes a lot of work and I have to weed through a lot of people and really make sure that I've got people that are excited and invested in learning from me and that it's a good fit both ways. So once I've done that, of course, I also make sure that they're well-adjusted, happy people. Once you've done that, you know, 80% of your work for the season is done, I feel like, because you're not going to be struggling with uh, difficult relationships and, you know, all those kinds of things. And you're going to have people that are excited about what they're learning. And then it's having systems on the farm. So if you have systems on the farm where people can um, work a little bit independently if needed need be, or just feel successful in what they're doing, feel productive in what they're doing, um, that really lends itself to, to having a fun atmosphere where people feel like they're learning and growing. So, you know, people to feel successful need to feel a certain sense of autonomy. They need to feel like they're moving towards something in the future. Um, and that it's nice if there's a, a sense of community as well. So we try to foster all of those things. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, you talk about systems on the farm and I, I'm always, I'm a systems guy. I love them. So I'd like to talk about what kinds of systems you're, you're using once you have employees there. But first, I'd really like to ask you about your system for hiring employees. You said you, you put a lot of time and effort into it. That weeding out is really critical. What do you actually do to create a reliable outcome. All right. So in terms of hiring people, I'd say the first step in the product process is just to have your farm information out there. So our website has on our website, there's an ex extensive description of our apprenticeship program. And there are lots of beautiful pictures of the farm. And there's a great description of what our farm is all about. And then from there, there's all kinds of things that we have on YouTube showing how we accomplish things. And so because we put so much out there, oh, there's also 
um, descriptions from other apprentices saying, you know, thank you, Dave, for what you've taught me and how successful my farm is now. Uh, you know, you've been a large part of that, that kind of thing. So we have testimonials on there. We've got a full description of our program. We just put as much out there as possible. And by doing that, by the time most people contact me, they're already pretty sold on Sister Hill Farm, you know, unless they want to learn about animals or something, unless they have other goals. If they feel like the farm is a good fit for them, they'll be absolutely certain they want to come work for me before they even contact me. So that uh, is sort of a very efficient way of making sure that the best people come to you right away. From there, um, we do post on Atra and things like that. We put things out where other people would. But basically building a reputation as a strong mentor and a, and a great farm to be on um, is a big part of how we get great people. Um, from there, you know, I'll ask them to answer some specific questions as well as send me a resume and references. And from there, I will email them back and we'll usually conduct a phone interview. I say, you know, we'll do it within a half an hour. Um, and then if that goes well, then I'll invite them for a working visit and they'll come and I'll tour them around the whole farm. We'll have usually an hour, an hour and a half interview, and then, um, we'll do some work together as well. And that's basically my process for hiring people. And when are you going through that process? I just had an interview yesterday. So, I mean, it's, you know, from late fall Midsummer, all the way through the next through that winter, depending upon how many applicants I've gotten and whether I've updated my information early enough or that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's an ongoing process until I find somebody that I feel that I'm confident enough that I should offer in the position. So once you get somebody to the farm, how do you make sure that they've got that feeling of autonomy as well as getting that feeling of success mm-hmm. right off the bat once they get there? I approach my apprenticeship differently than a lot of people. Um, in my early years, let's say my second year here on the farm, I was such a go-getter. I was like, okay, I'm going to come up with a game plan before the day begins. And I'm going to say, here's what we're going to do. What I realized after a couple of years of that was actually what I realized after that year, when I had to fire both of them and things went horribly wrong, was <laughs> that that wasn't the right way to do it. If If I wanted to really teach people I needed to give them a little bit of a window into what I was thinking and how I was making these decisions. So starting from the very earliest part of the season, I don't come in with a game plan. I come in and we all sit down together and we look at the uh, crop plan. We look at the greenhouse plan. We look at the weather for that week. We walk around the field and we come up with a plan together. So by doing that with them, I'm really giving them, like I said, that insight into how I make these decisions. And that's one of the major gifts I think I can give them. So we have that morning meeting and, you know, as the season progresses, you know, they're quicker and whatnot. But then another key is effective communication. So I try to make sure that there is very little ambiguity in terms of what I expect from them. Um, So we have a pretty detailed apprenticeship handbook, those kinds of things. And then I try to make sure that I have check-ins with them. We have a check-in once a month. Um, another key is that I actually let them do things. So a lot of farms are like, well, tractors are just too expensive. They're too important. You know, I spent $40,000 on that tractor. I'm not going to let some apprentice use it. And what I do is I train everyone on all the tractors. The very first week they're here, we do 
um, we do our maintenance on all of them. We do all oil changes and air filter changes and all that kind of stuff. So they're familiar with these things. And then I set them off and say, you know, go practice on these tractors. And then I have them use them all throughout the year. And the amazing thing about sort of sharing all this insight with them and making sure, you know, giving them the trust to use this equipment that's expensive and maybe they could damage is that, you know, like this past year has been a real tough one for me. And in the past uh, 14 months or so, I've had two surgeries. So last August, I was planning on going on vacation. It was like August 7th. And my son and I went up to the mountain biking world championships at Wyndham Mountain to watch and also to mountain bike ourselves. And I've never been on a downhill mountain biking before. And so I got a little too excited and I was going over some very large jumps and and I crashed and broke my collarbone and totally destroyed my shoulder. And so I needed to have surgery and have titanium plates put in there and Kevlar ligaments and things. And so I was out for a while then, you know, at least a month and it wasn't really that um, helpful as a worker for another couple months beyond that. But it was amazing that they were just able to really take over. They were already planned on being in charge of that week. I was supposed to be down in Cape May on vacation with my family, but, um, but they had to be in charge for quite a bit more and they did a, a really wonderful job. And the only way that kind of thing can happen is if I had given them all these tools that I'd given them throughout the year to that point. So the same thing happened <laughs> this year <laughs> because I had a back surgery for a disc that I had a sciatica going down my leg, which maybe was related to that original accident. I don't know, but I'm uh, into a lot of sports and I, I, at least lately, have been hurting myself <laughs> a lot. Maybe that was from farm work. I don't know. But so it's kind of amazing. You know, they got a lot out of that, you know, having to take charge a little bit more. But it never would have been possible if I was the type of grower or mentor who said, you know, I'm doing all the tractor work when they go. I only trust them with this. Um, so it benefited me, but it benefits them tremendously because they actually know what it's like to have to manage. Um, and that's really an important part of that. So then beyond that, usually in August is when I, we have our management practice weeks. So starting in mid to late August, the apprentices are in charge of the farm for a week at a time, or sometimes two weeks at a time. They seem to be liking that better now because they can have more continuity. What happens is they will tour the entire farm on Sunday. I will tour the entire farm on Sunday. They'll come up with a to-do list, including um, our harvest plans. And then I'll come up with sort of my list. They'll tell me what their plan is and we'll go through it. And obviously they're not experienced enough to know everything, but by us meeting, we can sort of work out the kinks. And then I watch them manage for the week. Um, kind of trying to stay out of their hair as much as I can, but I'll give them suggestions if needed. And then we analyze it at the end of the week. And I have some forms that I've created where I ask things like, um, you know, uh, how would you, how was your game plan? Did you have a good game plan for the day? Did you stick to it? How did you encourage and maintain speed within the crew? You know, were your transitions short and efficient? Did you have all the tools and materials ready? Um, all those kinds of things. And they'll evaluate themselves and I'll evaluate them. We'll talk about the hiccups and we'll talk about the successes. And this really gives them an amazing insight into do they have what it takes to run a farm? 
you know, what are the things they're really going to need to work on, whether it be the way they uh, present themselves to people or how comfortable they feel in that leadership position or do they need to develop their planning skills, any number of things. But I feel like this is what really gives them a sense of if they can accomplish this, if they want to do this, how comfortable they are with it, all those things. I'm fascinated with this because, I mean, you really are creating tremendous opportunities for people to screw things up in your farming operation. How do you deal with things when when something goes dramatically wrong? I mean, I assume that if you're training people how to drive tractors the first week on the farm, they don't have any maybe don't have any tractor driving experience. Yeah, you must have things get broken or dinged up. What you know, things must go wrong during management week. How do you or when you're on vacation? Yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Well, as as a as a boss, as a as a farmer, as somebody who's invested in Sisters Hill Farm. Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I I do have you know my strong preferences about the way things should be done. <laughs> so when this goes awry, it's usually that I butt in a little bit too much. I can honestly say that I really nothing major has ever happened. Um, we've had. I think the worst thing, we definitely have had people sort of nick the barn or nick a solar panel with the loader over the years. But, you know, I'd say all in all, we've probably, that solar panel was the biggest deal. So that was maybe, you know, $700 to replace or something. But we really have had very little loss. And in terms of like mistakes when they're managing, I'm still here. I'm still around. I'm kind of like one of the crew. So last week, as an example, I had. Um, you know, it was reaching the end of a work day and I was down just pulling something out of a field for them. And I decided to check on some radishes. And when I did, I said, wow, these radishes are perfect right now. We really shouldn't wait another day or two. So I picked a little bunch and I brought them to her attention. And I said, you know, these are looking really great right now. What do you want to do? <laughs> you know, and so not so subtly, I, you know, gave the idea that this is what should be done. And so it wasn't like I was saying you have to do this, but I sort of give those cues to like, okay, there may be an opportunity that we might be missing here. So really things that well, don't leave it to the point of, okay, things are totally going to fall apart. Um, you know, when I was gone and out sick and, you know, under all kinds of drugs trying to recover from surgery, yeah, then things could have gone very wrong. But like I said, because I've spent this effort hiring really fantastic people they don't. I mean, these people care as much about the farm as I do. And they care so much about learning and applying themselves toward this, that we have this common goal and this common mission. And we're partners in sort of their development. And we're partners in creating fantastic shares for our members. I really have to say nothing's ever gone wrong over the years. It's just gone right. I've been, I've been fabulously happy. I mean, when I'm not here, obviously what falls by the wayside usually is the weeding falls a little bit behind, you know, but that's something we can catch back up on when I usually get back in shape. So, <laughs> With that, David, I think this would be a good time for us to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with David Hamilton from Sisters Hill Farm in Stanfordville, New York. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast has been provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. 
When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil, and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992 vermontcompost.com. Additional support for this episode provided by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web brings greater efficiency to how you work with your buyers, saving you time and increasing the number of buyers your farm can work with overall. Use this software to inform your buyers about your farm, your product availability, and delivery days and zones. You can also enforce order minimums, lead times, and more. With Farmers Web, your customers can place their orders online or you can take their orders in other ways and enter them in yourself. You can define payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and product catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or COD, or buyer payments by credit card go right into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your costs, and you can pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. There is no annual commitment. Farmers Web is available to farms, farmer cooperatives, and local food artisans nationwide. FarmersWeb.com all right, and we're back with David Hamilton from Sisters Hill Farm in Staffordville, New York. David, you mentioned kind of in an offhand way that you're you're into sports. Uh, you've gone on vacation. Um, that doesn't, I don't think that fits with what most farmers see as farming. How, how much are you working each week that you have time to be into lots of sports? Well, uh, our hours are... 45 hours a week during the height of the season. So Monday through Friday, we work eight hours a day. And then Saturday, we work approximately five hours. We have a pickup on Saturday morning. So we come in at 7.30. We get set up for our start at 8. And then we finish at 11 and we close down shop. It takes about 20 minutes and then we're done that day. The other days, generally, we're working, you know, in the height of summer, we work 6 a.m. to 2.30 and, um, you know, this time of year we're working 7 to 3.30. And, yeah, that's our day. So, When you talk about those kinds of hours, I mean, putting in eight-hour days uh, yeah. Monday through Friday and, and, five, and five hours on Saturday, that, that doesn't seem like a lot of time for accomplishing the tasks that come on, on the farm and, and yeah. dealing with all – I mean, there's just – there's always something to do on the farm. How do you make that work? Well, that is true. There is always something to do on the farm. And so what I work very hard on is prioritization, you know, so prioritizing those things that are the most important to do at that particular moment. And there was a book I read many years ago before I started farming. It's, I'm sure, not in vogue now, but it was called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the things he talks about is production and production capability. So production is just you go out there and you harvest those radishes. Production capability is let's develop a system that will enable us to harvest and get those radishes washed quicker. Um, And so over the years, as we've grown the farm, I've constantly been thinking not just about production, but how can I increase my production capability? 
how can I look at those crops and those things that we do, the, the washing, the packing, the seeding, the weeding, and how can I streamline those processes so that it can give me the balance that I want in life and make me feel successful in what I'm able to accomplish. So an important part of that also is not just the planning of the systems, but it is in the fact that we've decided what we want to do with this farm, that we just want it to be CSA. So I touched upon this earlier, I think, as we were talking about the fact that so many farms say, oh, I want to go to this farmer's market and I want to sell the restaurants and I want to, because that's the way to make money. I just got to take advantage of every little market outlet out there and I'll make the most money. And I've come at it from a different angle. So because I was an employee and I was working for the Sisters of Charity who have taken a vow of poverty, uh, if I had a very successful year, I didn't get paid anymore. You know, if I wanted to get paid more, I had to negotiate with them and say, hey, uh, or or just say, I, I deserve a raise and this is why. And so a lot of the effort that I've put into this farm has been, how can I make it more productive? How can I make it so it's more ergonomic here at the farm? How can I make it so I can get the work done more efficiently? And wonderfully enough, that has actually led to more profitability and more productivity. So it's, it's great how the farm has developed in that way, partly because of my personality and my wish to keep things simple, but also partially because we sort of weren't chasing every profit possibility out there. Um, so I think we're able to learn and discover some new things that a farm that was um, just kind of chasing the money, which of course we all have to do to an extent, but me being an employee changes that relationship a little bit. And it's it's been a wonderful thing in terms of helping me create a farm that serves my life in more ways than just in a monetary sense. So when you talk about a 45 hour work week, is there stuff that you do that's related to the farm that happens outside of those 45 hours? Are you doing bookkeeping at night, writing CSA newsletters, inventing garlic peelers? Uh, inventing garlic peelers. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, those sort of uh, things that just, are incredibly interesting to me. I'll be working on off time sometimes, but bookkeeping. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing that after hours for sure. Um, or the other things you said, Oh, newsletters. No, not newsletters. Generally the way we've approached newsletters is I alternate my article with our apprentices. So I only have to do it once a month. And then we have some members of the farm who put all our recipes together. So it's a community thing, just like a lot of things on the farm. We, over the years, have learned when it's really nice to ask and when it's really nice to have our community be a part of, of our work. And, and it's only we've only benefited from it. The wonderful thing about this is that I don't consider myself, you know, a lot of people get their entire identity wrapped up in their career. I'm very proud of what I've done as a farmer. And I love farming. And I really can't imagine doing too much else. But I also love woodworking. I also love rowing. I love mountain biking. I love my family. I love time with my children and my wife. Um, any number of other things. And so I've always been somebody who was passionate about learning new things. And one of the one of the personal thing on my mission statement is to maintain a beginner's mind. And so I love learning new things and I love sort of always having a sense of newness and variety in my life. And because the farm is not all encompassing, because it doesn't demand everything of me, 
I feel much more happy and fulfilled and balanced. So it's great that the farm can do that for me. It's interesting that you talk about the CSA as being a vehicle for that to happen. Can you talk a little bit more about your CSA? You mentioned that it's a market style CSA. So people are coming to the farm to pick up. Yeah. Um, how do you guys have that pickup set up? Is it, is it a free choice kind of a thing or are you, is it structured so that you get one of this and two of that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, again, when I was recovering from my back surgery this year, I thought one of the ways that I could still be of use, uh, to people is kind of to be available on some of these social network type things and, so there's this group called um, CSA Farmer Discussion on Facebook, and there's been a lot of negativity around CSA. Basically, the idea that the box schemes have sort of abscounded with the idea of CSA and that we're all losing market share and that there's too much competition and, and all these things. And it's that attitude is kind of antithetical to what I feel and see as a CSA farmer here, I, I don't have difficulty finding new members, despite the fact that there's five or six new CSAs now in my County. And when I began, there weren't any. Um, and so I sort of asked myself, what is working for us? You know, why is this the case, you know? And I think it's a large part about the community we've created, but it's mostly about the food. I mean, we really focus on creating the highest quality produce that we possibly can. And part of that high quality is the perception of quality as well. So if it just looks really clean, if it if there's no seed leaves on your bunches, if there aren't crushed leaves, if they're washed beautifully, um, if they're presented beautifully, that all adds, even though in the field, your radishes might have been nicer than mine, if mine are presented in this way, my members will perceive them to be of higher quality than what you've grown. So that's really important is the way that we present it all. Um, you asked if we're, if they just can fill a bag or whatever, that isn't the way that we approach it. It is kind of market style. So everything's out. I've created these custom bins that um, we can quickly and easily put our boxes of produce on straight from the cooler. And we, they lean towards the customer and they have these hanging scales. And so we'll say, take up to a pound of arugula, two heads of lettuce, two pounds of carrots, you know, three pounds of tomatoes, and they'll weigh the stuff up right there. And certain things are choice. So I think um, I've seen a lot of pictures of people's shares on that thing as well. And I'm always surprised at what I see because uh, I remember one week in the summer, eight out of 10 share pictures I saw had tomatillos in them. And maybe one out of 10 had lettuce. And I survey our members every year, every few years. And I ask them a bunch of important questions. But one of the most important series of questions that I ask is with every single crop, I say, you know, how much do you like this crop? So I rank it from one to five, from least favorite, not enjoyable at all, neutral is three, to favorite, most enjoyable. And so we get a ranking of our customers, all the different crops, how much they enjoy them. And so what I do is when I'm putting out my share, lettuce, for example, 
nearly everyone loves lettuce and there's maybe one neutral, you know, five neutrals or something. And then there's no negative scores on that. And so I figure lettuce every week is a really important part of their share. So we aim to give lettuce um, every single week of the season. We plant it 24 uh, times a season and we try to give two or three heads a week, mostly two. This time of year we're given one because they're, they're just about done and we're into other greens. Um, but you know, the ranking starts tomatoes, garlic, melons, lettuce, carrots, onions, spinach, and then down the way at the bottom, we have chard, celeriac, and red mustard greens. <laughs> so chard was always, just a, you know, one of those things to me, like as a grower, I love growing chard. Uh, it just keeps producing all season. It's beautiful, but it's one of the least universally loved. There will be some members that love it, but what's great is from my survey, I can graph each of these crops and I can see what's universally loved and what is loved by some. So those things that are loved by some and are at the bottom of the list, those are the things that we tend to choice. So chard might be at the back of distribution and be like, take what you can use, or it might be chard or broccoli rob or chard or celeriac or those lower, less universally loved crops will be a choice. So that's one of the ways that we approach that. And then I also ask members, how do you feel about the quantity we gave? And I make sure that it was the appropriate quantity. So that's the same thing, a ranking one to five and three is just right. So that's one of the ways that we make sure that they keep coming back and they really get what is a good share for them. So the area around Stanfordville, you said you're in the Hudson Valley. Is it a fairly dense population? How far are your members coming to get to the farm? No, that's a great question. I think a lot of times people, they're like, we need to have another drop-off site. And I think drop-off sites are so much less reliable in terms of trying to create customer satisfaction and member retention. Our town uh, of Stanfordville doesn't even have a stoplight. It's there's not even really a town. <laughs> We're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we have about 2,600 people in our town. You know, it's all kind of five acre zoning. So Within a 10 or 15 mile radius, um, you know, there's a couple other small towns that are, again, maybe that two to 3,000 uh, up in Pine Plains, just north of us, I think is maybe around 3,000 people. And Millbrook, south of us, is a couple thousand people. So there's no population density whatsoever around us. And yet we have over 200 people coming to the farm every week to pick up their veggies. And, uh, so a lot of times what I would suggest for other farmers is really try to make that farm experience um, part of what you're offering. So I don't consider that we're just selling vegetables. I consider that we are selling that entire experience because we really hear that from people that it makes a huge difference in their lives coming to the farm and the beauty of the farm, meeting their neighbors and that sense of peace that they feel and things. Do you have an idea of the average distance that your members are driving to get to your farm? Yeah. Uh, most of our members are coming, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to get here. We, if somebody's coming much further, we really try to encourage them to join another CFA closer to them because part of what we are trying to promote in being CFA farmers is shopping locally and eliminating food miles and those sorts of things. So, and do you have an idea of what you're getting for a retention rate on the farm? Yeah, we do. I actually looked at it a little bit closer this morning so I could give you some solid numbers. But <laughs> our our general retention rate 
since the first year till now is right around 80%. So most years, you know, will be somewhere, you know, 75 to 85%, but it's 80 overall. And then for our new members, somebody who just joined last year, for the year to year with a new member retention is two out of three of those people will stick with us. But we have 93 members for more than a, that have been with us for more than a decade. You know, look back 18 years, we still have seven of those original members. 14 years ago, we have 49 of those original members. Three years ago, we have 209 of the same people from three or four years ago. So, you know, we've got excellent member. I think I, I read re- recently that the average member retention is like 45%, you know, and that's not new members. That's overall. And that's just a scary statistic, you know. I would really love to sort of share what I know so that that doesn't happen to a lot of farms because I think what a lot of established CSA farms are feeling about that is that if those people are leaving, there was something they experienced that they were just dissatisfied with, and that's sort of hurting the the CSA movement as a whole and the idea of CSA. So I'd like to help people to be more successful in retaining those CSA members. It's something that I've said again and again, probably overly often on the show is I think there's a real difference between community supported agriculture and customer subscription agriculture. And, you know, what you're really describing is something where you, like you, like you said earlier in the show, you've created a community, you've made a place where people come, they see each other, they see you, they feel like they're engaged and part of the farm. And like the farm is something that they really want to be engaged with and, and feel in the, that the farm is something that invites them in. We work very hard at that. I mean, our newsletters, we're always trying to connect with them and give them a sense of what we're trying to accomplish in the field, how we're trying to grow not only food, but we're trying to grow future farmers. Um, the apprentices give wonderful articles about things. And then we have these great picnics. We trade uh, vegetables for this amazing live band. And so we have two picnics a year with this amazing band and we buy all kinds of local meats and we grill and we, you know, we used to have just a potluck picnic, but we decided that it was just too much to ask people. I think a lot of people were like, well, I'd love to go, but I'm so busy and now I have to make something nice. And so we, we just said, bring a drink or bring a dessert or a side dish or something. And we used to have, you know, 30 people or 40 people to a picnic. Now we have over a hundred at our picnics. And we have potato sack races, and it's just a wonderful time. And then at various points throughout the year, we ask people to come and help us with major harvests, like our winter slash harvest. And we make it a short, discreet amount of time. We say an hour and a half. We're going to try to get all the winter slash harvested. And, you know, we have 40 people show up and, and get those kinds of projects done, which is really great. And they feel a, a more connection and kinship to us. And, um, you know, it's just... We work at we work at developing the community. We try to be very friendly during distribution. Um, everything's always fully stocked. You know, we're trying to make sure everything's just as bountiful and beautiful the moment they walk in, even if they're you know they're in the last fifteen minutes of pickup or something. So it's not like a lot of CSAs where it's just get the food to that spot and let them figure it out. You know, <laughs> you know, um, we sort of curate the experience a little bit closer. And uh, it's just amazing, you know, when you've known somebody for like this past year when I had my back surgery, there was a young woman who was going to college now and 
she had been a member since she was about three years old and she came to volunteer with the farm crew and help them out on her college break and, you know, help for like a week and a half full at a time. And it's just such an amazing thing to be, to know that I fed this person from the time she was a little, little girl. And she grew up here as the farm has been part of her life. And now knowing that we were in need, she came and helped out as much as she could. And there's a lot of people like that. And it's, it's, that's what real CSA is about to me. And I, I guess I'm kind of old school in terms of um, what I feel CSA should be, but not that we all need to be the same thing, but I'm excited about the prospect of, you know, what CSA started as and what it can still mean. Do you work with a core group on the farm? We did have a core group in our first few years. And then kind of once everything started humming along beautifully, uh, our core group kind of disbanded. There is a what we call an advisory group of Sisters of Charity that um, we work with in terms of just sort of future planning and, and that kind of thing. But that's uh, we have a couple of uh, just our members on that as well that are not fishers of charity. Just on you know at another really kind of fundamental CSA level, how do you go about setting your CSA prices? It's a good question. Um, our prices are pretty low <laughs> for the value we give. Um, a lot of CSAs I've heard sort of say, well, we give maybe a five percent discount off of market prices. Um, we really are sort of like the old school CSA where you just divide the harvest up amongst everybody. We don't have any other outlets. So we, that's why we've really worked so hard to look at these surveys and try to dial in what is a good share for people, what is the right quantity of things. And um, our members tell us year in, year out that we're giving them the right amount of stuff. And that's our main concern. Our price is a sliding scale, and we're really concerned that it be affordable to people of all income ranges. So it's not a huge range, but it's a $100 difference. It's 675 to 775 And in a really good year, it might be worth uh, $1,200 or something. So it's quite a significant savings over what that food would cost at the market. But the way that I look at it, um, is there's a lot of things that we're expecting of CSA members. They can't choose everything themselves. You know, there's a bit of uh, inconvenience in terms of getting to the farm and that kind of thing. They need to be very flexible in their menu planning. So you're asking a lot of CSA members in order to do that. So I actually don't think that you should expect to get the full value that you would at a farmer's market. And I think there's a lot of efficiency from our side of things as opposed to if we were going to a farmer's market. For instance, when we're washing greens, we're, and sometimes we don't even wash them. We just cut them directly from the field. They're under floating row fabric and they're beautifully clean. And we just make sure they're clean enough. We get them right in the bin. We get them on the scale. We know what we have for our members. And then we put them out and they're choosing them. But sometimes we'll dunk them. And so we don't put them through a spinner, all those kinds of things. We just tilt our harvest containers and let them drain uh, through gravity and then they go into the cooler. So we're expecting some things of our members, you know, that they'll get that stuff home and not leave it too soggy in a bag. Maybe they'll put it in a salad spinner. We try to educate them about those kinds of things. So a lot of what we're doing in terms of we give them beautifully clean stuff um, in great condition, but we're not 
you know, triple rinsing greens and then bagging them for them and then making sure they're the exact weight and all those things that, that do cost the farm quite a bit in terms of labor costs and things. So there's an efficiency there that we also feel like we don't necessarily need to get that retail dollar. Also, when we're doing uh, things like arugula and our greens, we can let them grow quite a bit bigger than that baby, tiny size that restaurants want. And a lot of farmers might bring to market to, to have somebody choose their greens over the competition next to them. So, Okay, so you said 675 to 775. Do you know what the average is that people are paying or how many people are taking the low road versus how many people are taking the high road with that? Yeah, it's it's pretty even actually. It's it's great that people we have we give no real instructions on how they should choose their level of commitment. Um we simply say those who pay toward the upper end help the farm to meet its operating expenses while allowing those with more limited resources to participate. The amount you choose is up to you. And about half the people choose something right in the middle and about a quarter choose the upper end and about a quarter choose the lower end. And so it just works out wonderfully well. They all know that they're getting an excellent deal. We talk about it in newsletters, you know, so we know that, you know, they all realize that they're getting great value. And can you give us an idea of what a share looks like on a weekly basis for that price? Uh, well, for your listeners, you could go to YouTube and search Sisters Hill Farm, you know, on YouTube. And there's pictures actually on our website as well. There are videos. We do a video every week of our share set up in the barn. I haven't downloaded any of them yet from this year, but knowing that this will be uh, published soon, I may put them on there. Um, <laughs> but I could pull out a harvest sheet, or I could go out and read off the board what's out there for this past pickup, if you want me to. Yeah, I'd be interested. Just to, I think it would be interesting to hear that. Yeah, sure. And you have a cell phone. And I have a cell phone, so I can walk out there. Yeah, this is our pickup for Tuesday, October 4th, 2016. We always say today's share, take up two, because we try to explain to them when they first join that if they leave something here, it will go to someone in need. So the one of the reasons people don't retain their membership in CSA is that they find things rotting in their fridge and say, oh, I just feel terrible about that waste. So we always say take up two because they can leave it. It'll go to someone in need. But this past uh, Tuesday's share was one pound of carrots, one pound of beans, one head of lettuce, one head of garlic, a pound and a half of tomatoes, one pie pumpkin, two eggplant or peppers, uh, one pound of onions or two leeks, a pound of arugula, three-quarter pound of different greens, one bunch broccoli rob, one bunch radish or two daikon or watermelon radishes. And then for pick your own, they had 15 stems of flowers, five hot peppers, 30 cherry tomatoes, and parsley no limit. So that's what the share was, this most recent pickup. You just mentioned the pick your own. What other crops are you doing as a pick your own? Uh, primarily, we're just doing pick your own cherry tomatoes, herbs, and flowers. Those are our major pick your own crops, yeah. We used to do some pick your own beans in the past and things, but we find that we can pick them much more efficiently and thoroughly. and People aren't traipsing right next to carrots or whatever might be next to those beans. And so it's a little easier for us to just manage that ourselves. 
I mean, you said you're running an average of about an 80% retention rate. When you do have turnover, where are you finding that 20% new membership each year? Well, mostly it's word of mouth, I would say. Um, one of our biggest ways of getting new members is just when a member can't make their pickup one week, they'll send a friend. And so often their friends will be quite amazed when they come and see what the share is like and we'll get people that way. Um, another thing we've started doing recently that is pretty neat is uh, a little every door direct mail kind of mailer to our local community. And uh, we have a little flyer with beautiful pictures of veggies on the front and uh, just has our name and then facts about our farm like Amazing taste, fantastic value. The average Sisterville farm member has saved over $2,200 in grocery bills over shopping at local markets and farm stands. Once you eat our veggies, you'll be a lifer. Our average member has been with us for over six years. 75 of our members have been with us for more than a decade. What we provide, et cetera, et cetera. You know, quotes from members. So we do a nice little flyer that we send out. We probably get a few people from that, uh, but mostly it's word of mouth. And then we, we do, you know let our members know during our winter season, just kind of let your friends know we've got some space, you know, we have a period of open enrollment. And then during the season, when, once we filled up, we do take those members that are interested in the following year and we jot down their email address and we put them on our mailing list and things. So that's basically the way we get filled up for the following year. And with that, David, I'd like to turn to our lightning round. And I'm really interested to hear your answer to this. What's your favorite tool on the farm? My favorite tool, <laughs> I have a lot of favorite tools, but I'd say the absolute favorite is a DMT diamond hone. So it's a little folding sharpener that you use for harvest knives, that we use for harvest knives. And I'm always amazed, you know, sometimes when I visit another farm, how dull their knives are. <laughs> so if we're out in the field harvesting something, you have a really razor sharp knife. The work is just so much more pleasant, so much quicker, so much more efficient, and you can do it. Let's say you're harvesting arugula or something. You can do it without grabbing. You can grab those leaves so gingerly they just fall off into your hand. Or if you're doing leeks, you can cut the, the leaves, you know, beautifully clean. Um, but we just have that folded up in our pocket, and we can just put a real quick edge on a knife super quick. And uh, it's one thing I really love teaching apprentices as well. Because it's one of those watershed skills. You know, once you learn how to create a sharp edge on a tool, you'll just always have sharp tools for the rest of your life. So There's no going back from that. There's no going back. You know, so course, course, and course on one side, medium on the other. DMT, they cost about 35 bucks. They're expensive, but it's well worth it. So. And, well, since they're expensive and since you're so good with your apprentices, let's ask this question too. How do you make sure that they don't just fall out of people's pockets and disappear? Uh, we have like six of them. <laughs> so that's a cheap, it's a cheap cost, you know, overall. But really, they don't disappear. They actually wear out. Even though diamonds on them, you kind of wear the diamonds off eventually. So I don't know if we've even lost any, but we just, uh, we do replace them every once in a while because the diamonds wear off. But because we're talking to you, David, what's your favorite invention on the farm? I would say, yeah, there's a couple of them. Definitely that rolling row marker that I created because it's foundational. You know, it's a foundation for so many subsequent jobs beyond that. So I 
I know a lot about construction. I designed and built my own house and, uh, you got to get that foundation, right? Cause everything else is square and true based upon that foundation. So that's the way that row marker is. It enables us to do so many subsequent operations quickly and efficiently without having some big expensive equipment to do those things and without burning a lot of fossil fuel too. So that, and then the other thing is the hydraulic wash table. I love that. Just be, especially being six foot seven and having back issues over the years. That's wonderful to get at that perfect ergonomic height. David, are those two things that you could send us a picture of that we could include in the show notes? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. So we'll make sure that those are included in the in the show notes for this episode. We'll talk a little bit more about that after we let David go here. So can I make a little plug for something, too, that I'm thinking about doing? Please do. So um, as I mentioned before, when I was recovering from back surgery this past year, I was spending a little bit of time on Facebook kind of trying to contribute what I could to the community of farmers. And I've, for many years, been interested in sharing what I've learned with those that are up and coming or even more experienced farmers, perhaps. And I found that that kind of social media outlet was a nice way to do that. But on other people's groups, I didn't really feel comfortable sharing too much. I didn't want to monopolize those conversations. So I've decided to try to start my own little Facebook group. So if any young new farmers out there or even experienced farmers are interested in seeing little tips and tricks from this farm, I'm going to start a little group called Farming Balance because I've talked a lot about creating balance in your life and having the farm serve your life. So if you just go on Facebook and search Farming Balance, I'll throw up a couple of videos on there and just start sharing some of the things I've created over the past few weeks or a couple of years. Um, we bought a, a GoPro and a time and a time lapse camera. So we've got some interesting videos of things like onion harvest where we're zooming down the field through, through time lapse photography and things. Um, so I'm going to share some of that on there. So if anybody's interested, look it up. David, we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Right. So besides the extremely dangerous sport of mountain biking, what are what other sports do you do? Well, it's funny. I, I kind of got into um, to farming partially because of my love of rowing. I was... Um, I was a rower in college, but I didn't discover the sport before college. And so the college I went to, Binghamton University, had a rowing club, but not a team. And so I was one of the best rowers on that team, but we were not a very successful team. We were always, as we said, DFL, dead, <laughs> you can imagine, last. So, um, <laughs> but I love the sport. And so a couple of years after that, I had a friend call me up who was talking to a coach who wanted to put a bunch of um, rowers together to try to go down to nationals and compete and see where they could go from there. And so I started training with those guys and um, went down to compete at nationals. I think it was like 1996 or something. So that's been a love of mine ever since that time. I didn't pursue it very much beyond that year because uh I discovered that my life was out of balance, uh, working 10 hours a day in a cabinet shop and working four or five hours a day, working out, trying to prepare for that and being newly married. I said, this is not the life I want, really. I'm not that driven toward this sport, but I still enjoy rowing to this day. And in fact, my son is uh, starting to row now. He's 13 and he's really starting to enjoy it. So that's a, a great pleasure for me to see that, that he loves that sport now. 
Um, but that, I, I mean, I just, like I said, I, I have this beginner's mind, so I love new things. I love being a beginner at things, even if it means I'm not good at them. A couple of years ago, I really got into bowling of all things, you know, <laughs> try to teach myself how to bowl and how to spin the ball, you know, so it would, so it would curve down the lane. But, um, yeah, mountain biking is my real love nowadays. I love running. Um, I'm a fairly good runner locally. I sometimes, you know, often win my age group, sometimes win whole races and things, but that's fun. No matter how fast I'm going, it's just fun to be out there using my body. And I love tra- being on trails and sort of being in nature. And that's something that farming gives me, but I love to feel, um, that I'm giving my all towards something. I love that feeling of, uh, whether it be farming or whether it be working out or whether it be moving my body or using my muscles, it's, it's really a great feeling to feel like I'm contributing fully towards what I'm doing at that moment. And so sport gives me that opportunity just as farming does. Do you have a favorite crop to grow? Uh, I really do love growing lettuce, head lettuce. Um, we have a standard kind of formula that we'll do maybe two reds, two greens and a romaine or something. And so we alternate those blocks through the field as we plant them. You know, each 120 cell tray of lettuce will be alternated by a red one and a green one. And it just looks so beautiful in the field and we do a fairly good job of it. So it's just such a pleasure to harvest all those beautiful heads. I'd say that and carrots, things like that. Crops that are a challenge, um, I enjoy quite a bit as long as we can be successful with them. So <laughs> radishes, just cause they're so beautiful, you know, when you've got those beautiful red radishes just popping out of the soil and you, you clean those bunches and they're just, they glow, you know? And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know, I thought about that question cause you let me know in advance and I can't think of anything. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm a person who um, who enjoys sort of the mystery of life and to see how it's going to unfold. And I'm not somebody who feels a, a big sense of regret about anything. So I, I really, I can't, I would just say have fun, Dave. You know, enjoy. That's great. Well, I know that I've certainly enjoyed our conversation today, just to be a little cheesy and broadcasty about it. So thank you so much for being on the show today, David. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. And um, it's good to reconnect with you once again. I, I still remember, I think, being in the back of the Arnold minivan or something and discussing our favorite books on farming and things. And I feel like you might have led me towards one called Whale Done. Is that, is that something that's familiar with you? Whale, yes. You know, whale yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that was a good management book. And then um, maybe you might have said something like guerrilla marketing or something, too. And And I was talking about you know, the seven habits and pathfinder and things like that. So I, I can almost exactly peg when this conversation was just based on those, on those book titles. Cause I remember right. yeah. we went through some times on the farm that had us spending a lot of time in that section of Barnes and Noble after farmer's market. So, right. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Dave. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 89 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for the show at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Hamilton. That's H-A-M-B-L-E-T-O-N. 
Remember, you can support the show by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I want to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Whether you're supporting the show on a monthly basis through Patreon or showing us your love by leaving us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, your support matters. Thank you. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. Finally, I appreciate so very much all of the guest suggestions I received through the suggestions form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. In fact, this was one. So please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.